If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hardfork. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Tim League. He's the founder of Alamo Drafthouse, a chain of luxury movie theaters with locations in cities from Austin to New York to Los Angeles. It's famous for its strict no talking and no texting policy. League says Alamo is all about the, quote, sanctity of the movie-going experience. But that movie-going experience may not be so sacred anymore at Alamo or anywhere else. That's thanks in part to the pandemic, which pushed Alamo and other theaters to bankruptcy. But it's also because of a bigger trend of technology and the rising streaming wars. The exclusive theatrical window is getting shorter, with many movies being released directly to streaming. No matter what, tech is decidedly changing the way people consume entertainment. And instead of going to the movies, we'll probably be staying at home more and watching them right here in our PJs. I've been saying for years now that the movie theater experience and its broken customer service model are in big trouble. They're heading toward, well, not dinosaur-level extinction, but towards smaller businesses where many won't make it. So I wanted to talk to League about what he thinks, because I suspect he disagrees with me. In fact, I know he does. Tim League, welcome to Sway. Uh, th- thank you, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, let's, <laughs> let's go. I like dinosaurs. <laughs> I like dinosaurs. So let's start with a column I wrote arguing that when streaming is an option, more and more people and consumers will take it and they like it. Um, the theater industry will shrink. And I didn't say it was going away. I said it was going to be a lot smaller businesses and it'll be harder for theaters to sell tickets. You wanted to discuss it. So talk to me about what you, you can call me an idiot if you feel like, but what do you, tell me what you thought about that concept. I will, I will tell you what my, my initial reaction one was. Um, I was, I was sad for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because. I'm a very happy person, but go ahead. I, it's, it's almost like embracing this dystopian idea of the future because I I get such joy out of going to the cinema. And I think that there's aspects about that communal experience. Um, also the therapy you get from turning your electronics off and just, you know, falling in love with a story that you can get at the cinema that you can't really get at home. And I really love the the little touches of being at the movie theater of not necessarily that you're interacting with the other people in the room, but some of my most visceral memories of having a surprise hit me in a story and feeling the surprise unfold around me with everybody else in the room, it's its magic. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I got into this business. Sure. I, I completely yeah. get that. It's very cinema paradiso of you. <laughs> this is an Italian movie about how, how this one cinema saved this town, which was not connected with each other, and they became connected watching theater uh, together as as a group, as a community, which I saw in the cinema, which was actually a lovely thing. I don't think I was arguing so much that I didn't like theaters and I didn't like the experience. There were two things. One is that the business itself, the economics of it Mm -hmm. are under siege, very much so. And secondly, that the movie going experience has not been as romantic and lovely for the consumer as movie 
aficionados seem to think. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a romanticized version of it, but mostly movie theaters have become, you know, uh, like factories. Like they just aren't pleasant. They're expensive. Luckily, the seats have gotten better recently, but only in some theaters like yours, for example. But in general, the movie chains had really ruined the whole experience, which I think people should expect when they're paying a certain amount of money, like a full family, you know, $70 or whatever it happens to be. So talk a little bit about that, the economics. And that's what I was talking about, is that it's a bad consumer experience. This is something that would is almost certainly going to get me in trouble by saying this, is uh, I think what's happened over the past year is ultimately in the long haul going to be a positive experience for this industry because the 90-day window of exclusive content for movies did allow the cinema industry to kind of be on its heels, right? We have this, this guaranteed exclusive product window. Ergo, you know, you can maybe not deliver the most perfect, amazing experience every single time, but people have no other choice. So I think in the wake of this, yeah, there's going to be some changes, but I like that there's now newfound pressure on this industry to deliver an exceptional experience because we can, and that's the goal. And if we're going to survive, we have to make sure from the idea of leaving the house to returning to the house that we deliver on that cinema purity. So ideal. So, you know, every movie theater I went to as a kid was wonderful. I mean, there's no question. They were big. They were lovely. You know, I understand size issues were one of the big problems, but I'm thinking of lots of theaters in the various places I've lived, including in San Francisco where the Alamo Draft House is located. You can see there were many, many other theaters there and are gone now. And one's a parking garage. One's probably a condo for techies. I don't, I'm sure like there's something like that, but most of them have been gone and created a, a lack of experience. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that happened? Is it just- well, I think there's been several moments where the industry changed um, throughout history. I mean, there was the advent of the multiplex. So most theaters used to be one theater and they were scattered. And charming. Uh, and, and charming. So right. um, they were called movie palaces. Yeah. So now they're, I wouldn't say palace, condo maybe. So there's been that idea that it's more efficient to have eight screens in one complex as opposed to one. So you don't have eight projectionists. You know, it, you can understand how that's a more cost-effective model. But I think it's it's really the commoditizing and the aggregating um, of larger companies buying individual theaters and having them under one banner and centralizing services and centralizing marketing. And that what happened is individual theaters no longer had a personality. And it started to die when uh, all theaters became centrally operated. So let's talk about your founding of the Alamo Draft House, because let me tell you, my kids do not go to the theater. They watch everything on their big screen because it's inexpensive. And we can talk about the economics of where streaming is, because now the equipment is not a small television. You can create really beautiful experiences in a home theater for very cheap prices. You don't have to be rich to do so. But talk about what you were thinking about when you started Alamo, because they did when we lived in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. They loved Alamo and they could differentiate the experience. They hated going to AMCs, you know, unless it was some Marvel movie that they really wanted to see. So explain what you were doing there when you were starting. it. I, I should offer a little bit of a caveat that my wife and I, we didn't have a master plan to grow beyond one movie theater back in 97. We were going to open that. We we're going to be happy this is in Austin. In Austin. Uh, well, actually, technically first in Bakersfield, California. We ran a theater in Bakersfield for two years, total failure. And then why? Why? Uh, you know, it was not in a great part of town. You know, maybe Bakersfield. Like, we were trying to do art house films in a pretty crime ridden neighborhood. It was it was rough. It was ill advised. We didn't know anything about anything. We're 24. And that 
mantra of location, 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 we couldn't have done it worse. And so we learned the business there and then shuttered that, took the um, the gear and went to Austin to start over and start fresh with Alamo. So you opened there. And what was your thinking behind creating this? So out of school, my wife was a geneticist and I was a, a mechanical engineer. I worked for Shell uh, in Bakersfield and I didn't like it. And you know, about a year in, it's like, I got to do something else. And so on my way to work was an abandoned movie theater. And then one day a for lease sign came up on that marquee and I, I loved movies. I've always loved movies, but I just never thought of it as a career path. And, you know, literally a week later, I slapped together a business plan and signed the lease and stupid, honestly. <laughs> no, I was 24 years old, had no work experience other than being an engineer and a paper boy, but loved movies. And my wife and I thought about um, what we didn't like about movie theaters. You know, honestly, a lot of the things that we, you know, are now known for was just built on these late night conversations with my girlfriend, then now wife, about what we were going to do differently and why these little touches made a difference. We were very much against advertisements, and we still are. We show movie trailers, but other than that, we don't do army recruiting ads or M&M ads and things like that. It's, we feel like people are paying for this experience, so let's give them the show and nothing but the show. Right, and food, and food, of course. Food, food and drinks. Uh, you know, I, the, like the three things I love most are great beer, great food, and great movies. So we just kind of threw together the three things that we were passionate about and went from there. So you were going gangbusters mm -hmm. for a long time and you expanded. So how many theaters total did you get to? Because you beat all the quirky cities, of course, the San Francisco's, the Austin's, the ones that would, where you would get people to come in this experience, correct? Yeah. So we, um, at our peak, we were at, at around 40 theaters. Uh, so you were, you were expanding like crazy. You were sort of the hot company mm -hmm. and talk about what happened in the pandemic because you are truly like people are eating there. They're talking there. It's a, it's a social experience. What happened right when it was starting? This was 18 months ago, essentially. Uh, I mean, it happened very quickly in March, right as South by Southwest was deciding to cancel two or three weeks later, there was a hot spot near our Yonkers theater in New York. And over the course of a week, it just became clear that we had to shutter every one of our venues and just kind of hole up and see what the future was going to be. So it was, it was devastating. Okay, so let's move on to this year. So in March, you said that you were, quote, extremely confident at the end of 2021, the cinema industry and our theaters specifically will be thriving. Are you still <laughs> extremely confident? <laughs> By the end of 2021? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I like that, that chuckle. I'm not extremely confident. I was feeling a lot more confident in May because it felt like the business was coming back and we were seeing the joy of uh, customers coming back to the theater. But then the Delta variant came and the uncertainty came back. So I think I still remain confident that there will be an end, that we will get past this and that the industry will return. You know, I'm, I'm not naive. I know that there's going to be some changes. There obviously have already been changes within the industry, but I don't think it's going to be catastrophic. I mean, I've heard by your own account, you, you think there's going to be a devastating loss in box office. Mm -hmm. And there is <laughs> box office revenues so far in North America in 2021 are down almost 75%. I'm not talking about the current. I'm talking about once okay, we're, right, once we're okay. you know, beyond, Future. You know, Future. Yeah. beyond. Yeah. Okay. So what is then your timeline of the movie? theater recovery? Does it depend on releases or what is the thing that is sort of when the Delta variant shifts and we don't get into the next variant, for example? Um, my metric is 
how comfortable people feel going out and going to the cinema. It's not really the release schedule. The release schedule will follow the consumer comfort level. And uh, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, has been pushed from September to October mm-hmm. amid the surge in COVID cases. Hotel Transylvania 4, although probably not the best of all of them, was scheduled <laughs> to open in theaters in October. Uh, but now talks to, is going directly to streaming. Uh, Bond, I can't believe I haven't seen the new Bond movie. Mm-hmm. This is something I would see in the theater or Top Gun too. I know. Please don't judge me. There's The Matrix 4, No Time to Die. The new Spider-Man is coming up later in the year. Uh, what does it mean for Alamo if those studios push those releases because of Delta? Well, if we've learned nothing else, it's how to be flexible and how to be nimble and how to pivot, right? So we're ready to face that challenge. It's, it's. I understand my role in this grand scheme, right? The studios, they make an investment for a film and they need to return on that investment. And so if somebody moves to a date that's more stable in the springtime, if they're anticipating maybe that we'll be at a better place and people are more comfortable going out, I don't begrudge them. If they take the movie to streaming, I understand the decision, right? So my conversations with the the studios have been, and I think there's plenty of data points that point to this as well, is that the cinema experience is an extreme driver of not just brand building, but awareness If you're looking at return on investment, having a window for cinemas uh, makes the most sense. Um, Right. A theatrical release. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, look at Free Guy, you know, outperforming Suicide Squad. Um, uh, You look at those two different models and Suicide Squad should have like towered over top of that. And so ultimately the studios want the cinemas back and we're going to get to a point of normalcy. There'll be a, a smaller window than there was before. But that's not all bad. I think that's our model. It's good. True. But do they? I want to talk about that, because one of the things the pandemic has done for not just cinema, for everybody, is created the world's biggest experiment on consumers of what they like. The movie landscape is different than before the pandemic, and it's probably accelerated trends that were all already starting and that that studios do welcome. In the U.S., the number of streaming subscriptions rose by 32 percent in 2020. There's so many more beyond Netflix, obviously. How do you think about this change in people's, the acceleration of a trend that was already starting before the pandemic? So um, my perspective is that streaming is not the enemy. I've never felt that way. You know, the um, our true competitors at a cinema are, what are you going to do on your nights outside of the home, right? Because you don't want to spend your entire, that's what was so sad to me about your piece was the, the idea that that's what you prefer. I want to be home. For movie theater. And, I go out for uh, other things. Sorry. All right. Trust me, I have a very lively life. So, but, but my lens is I want to be competitive against all those other things. Like, why do you go out? I mean, are you going to a restaurant? Are you going to watch live comedy? Do you see live music? Are you going bowling? I don't know. I want our experience as an industry to be on par. So when you say, I got to get out of the house. What am I going to do? I'm going to the movies. And I think there's newfound pressure to increase the experience across our industry, which I think is healthy. There's fear and panic possibly associated with that. But I think everybody realizes that you got to have bright picture, big sound, clean theaters and and amazing content. Right. I think there is almost certainly going to be some level of loss in theatrical business because of streaming. Again, I'm not naive, but the the majority of our customers come to see one or two movies a year. They see the event movies and they do it as an occasional out of home experience. And I don't I don't think that's necessarily going to change. The stats have been that people that watch a lot of streaming content also 
watch a lot of movies in theaters. Mm-hmm. When you think about all the the studios have been doing, they've made big changes in how they release movies. Obviously, AMC and Warner Brothers just struck a deal to have the studios' movies uh, stay exclusive to theaters for 45 days. AMC and Universal have a deal where that window is just 17 days. In the past, exclusive theatrical windows were between 70 and 90 days. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for Alamo? When you, you know, these are big chains that are doing these deals. Where do you fit in or do you get the squeeze there in terms of not having these available to you? I, I, I don't think we get the squeeze. I think the terms kind of flow through. 85% of our revenue comes in those first couple of weeks. And so for us, having even a 17-day window is not bad because that allows us to cycle through movies more. It allows us to negotiate to get uh, better rates with the distributors. There's benefits to having a shorter window for us. And so I'm not, I haven't really been uh, afraid of that change. Got it. So what are, what movies do well in your theaters? Is it like F9, Fast and Furious? So what's, I think, a little bit unique about us is uh, 70% of our revenue comes from the big blockbusters, and about 20% of our revenue comes from smaller titles. So we do extraordinarily well with those. And then 10% comes from alternative content and classic and repertory. So we've got one foot in the art house arena and one foot in the you know commercial multiplex arena. Mm-hmm. So blockbusters, really, 70%. That's yeah. it. I didn't realize I mean, it was that yes. big. Uh, Harry Potter and the Avengers have paid our bills over the years. <laughs> as with many people. <laughs> so let's talk specifically about your business because one of the reason I was asking that is because you have to sort of bring people back. Mm-hmm. In March of 2021, a year into the pandemic, Alamo filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. According to the Austin Business Journal, quote, last December marked an all-time low for Alamo Drafthouse. Revenue was essentially <laughs> non-existent. How close were you to the edge? And will you walk me through how you came to terms with filing for bankruptcy. Yeah. Not an unusual thing. Lots of people fire from Chapter 11. And and that's important. It was Chapter 11. It was a very structured bankruptcy. Not chapter 7. Yeah. Right. So in December, things were dire. We were going to run out of money in probably January or February. Costs, no revenue. You had all these costs, no revenue. All the costs, no revenue. And we're racking up a bunch of debt from you know leases that we have. And so in December... Uh, we negotiated with the banks to reduce some of our of our debt. We, and we brought on uh, a new investor to reinvest in Alamo and to and basically buy the bank debt and buy the company, basically. The two were Altamont Capital and Fortress Investment. Mm-hmm. And you're part of the investor group that bought the assets. Correct. Yeah. So I re-upped in January. But we couldn't negotiate our way out of the mostly the lease debt that we had. And so we entered into Chapter 11 in part so that we could also be stronger and set up to grow. Right now, Altamont Capital and Fortress Investment, how much power do these two private equity firms have? Well, you know, they own a majority of the company. So I guess technically they have, you know, total power, right? But Altamont has, um, we've been with them since 2018. They came on as a partner then. We um, gave them or sold part of the equity there. And they've been extraordinary partners and helped close the deal with Fortress and they're still, they're the exact same. There are partners, they're patient, they like the brand, they like the business. And then, you know, Fortress, I mean, they deal more in distressed assets. And so they don't really get involved in the day-to-day. There's pressure, obviously, with any business to to hit numbers and build a forecast and become profitable, right? But nothing has significantly changed. You were profitable before the pandemic, is that correct? Yes. Hugely profitable? Or? I mean, define hugely. I was reasonably profitable. I can easily define hugely. <laughs> Facebook and Apple. <laughs> we outperformed the industry in 2019. You know, we've had strong same-store growth forever. 
we're stable and profitable and we're going to get back there. <laughs> All right. So obviously private equity always makes a lot of people nervous. It often comes with dire consequences, Payless, Toys R Us. Are you worried about that? Uh, I don't lose sleep over it. <laughs> I, you know, obviously anything could happen. And uh, I think we're well positioned to come out of this strong because I think we're already doing what the industry needs to do. We've been so focused on the customer experience. We built a lot of technology. One of the early COVID projects is we built a, a video on demand service, a curated video on demand service. So I do think that the technology arena around customer experience is very important. Yeah, your app could use some help. <laughs> so one of the things in February, I talked to billionaire investor Mark Cuban on Sway. I asked him about selling landmark theaters a couple of years ago. It had 50 locations, more than 200 screens, very nice theaters. I asked him how he felt about the business now. And he said, quote, I think that if the number of screens contracts 30% or more, it'll be a great business. What's your reaction to that? Hmm. I don't know if it's... um contraction in screens necessarily. I don't think there's going to be as significant a drop off in overall box office. You know, if I had to name a number, I'd say maybe 15, 20%. And rising prices, that's a way to improve box office. Yeah, but that card has already been played too much, right? So, you know, hopefully that's not the answer. I think the answer is make going out to the movies uh, to be truly at its best. Mm -hmm. So Alamo is planning to open new theaters, speaking of which, not less screens, more screens in New York, St. Louis, Virginia, Washington, D.C. I'm excited about that. That's where I live now. Is that the most expansion you'll be doing or is oh, that no. that's a very positive viewpoint, presumably? Yeah, no, the, I mean, we're looking at new properties. We're bullish on it. So, yeah, I've been getting on planes again and looking at sites and looking at opportunities. So we're going to continue to grow and expand for sure. I'd be remiss if I wasn't didn't ask about company culture, too, because you also have to think about employees. I'd love you to talk a little bit about employees and then about the situation in Kansas City, which employees went public with allegations, including sexual harassment, racism, and unsafe work environment. One former employee wrote a Facebook post, quote, it turns out Alamo way is to oppress, overwork, and harass workers to the point of mental instability. Can you give me a response? Because the pitch, which is a Kansas City publication that wrote this, said these issues were unaddressed by the corporate side of Alamo. So I'd love your response to that. You know, uh... It's obviously challenging, right? And I think this in part, uh, I take responsibility. I lead the company, right? And, um, you know, you look into yourself and your failings are pointed out and you realize that you can do better, right? And so it was an opportunity to face that criticism and work really hard to try to be as good a company as we can. And perhaps... I was more focused on the customer journey and maybe not the company culture journey. And maybe I took it for granted. So we worked really hard to make changes and, you know. So what changes have you made to make sure it doesn't happen again? And then overall, mm -hmm. the whole company, because the pandemic, obviously, people weren't working. Sure. Part of it is instituting a code of conduct for everybody, for everybody associated with the business, to have a better feedback mechanism and loop for having anonymous comments to be able to get to the leadership from all ranks in the business. Also to kind of restructuring our leadership team. During the pandemic, we brought on a CEO, Shelly Taylor, and one of her main roles is to build exceptional company culture, to have a company that's amazing. So it was a hard and challenging time, honestly. And you look upon that and you look upon 
your own failings. And the only thing you can do is say, we didn't do as good a job as we should have. I want this to be the best possible company just for customers and for our teammates. And I do believe that we're on that path. So when you think about how treating employees and treating them better, you're coming out of a pandemic where it's hard to get workers. What are you going to do for these employees to attract them to you versus anywhere else? Are you facing that problem, by the way? For sure. I think everybody is. And it's an interesting challenge. And you try to pinpoint it. You know, I like to think that... You're all pinpointed. A lot of workplaces suck. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, you think about um, you have a year or more off to reflect upon your life. And there's um, the opportunity to get a real estate license, to find your passion. I don't buy into this idea that people are lazy and just, you know, collecting unemployment. I think that's a terrible remark. So what we're doing to attract people is, uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, we've offered uh, healthcare and 401k for over a decade. It's core for me to make that available to my teammates and competitive wages opportunity for advancement. And we offer a fair number of perks that other places don't, you know, free meals, free movies. If you're a movie head and you want to work with us, we, we want to have as many movie heads around us to love the mission of what we're on and be a part of why we exist. I think the food service industry hasn't necessarily been known for being an incredibly positive work environment. And um, it, much like the cinema industry, I think it's, it's an opportunity to rise up and to offer a great experience. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Jason Kylar, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Tim League after the break. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. I want to end talking about this video on demand servers. How does it fit in with the business model? Because you basically launch a streaming service, which I think proves my point that theaters are in trouble, too. Well, <laughs> maybe not. I'll tell you, like the initial impulse for doing it was, well, A, 
I had a lot of time on my hands. The theaters were closed. But we were involved with the movie Parasite and worked really hard on that movie and had extraordinary success with it theatrically, which, mind you, is also an example of why theaters are really important because a movie like Parasite, you drop that on a streaming platform, Hulu or Netflix, you know, a bit of just a bump in the road. But through the theatrical experience, it grew to this stature that it won Best Picture and uh, Best Director. But we know from our data that the people that watch the trailer on our site, less than half of them got around to it, right? So why not uh, participate in the home entertainment window and uh, say you can support the Alamo Drafthouse and support the theater by watching Parasite with us? And we're not trying to be... Amazon Prime, and we're not trying to be a library of everything. It's a relatively small collection of about a thousand movies. And every last one of those movies, somebody on the programming team, either myself or you know a handful of others, we love it. Why give your money to those Disney people, for example? Well, I think it's also the importance of curation, which all the importance that was put on the Netflix algorithm. It's not what I'm looking for. I don't think an algorithm can tell me exactly what I want to see because I want to be surprised. I want to see something fresh and original, new voices. So we think like one of the most important aspects of both Alamo on Demand, the video service and the theater chain is our passion for movies and curation. Curation. That's like an old video store used to do that. Yeah. But one of the things that's important, you have companies like yours and others thinking it's important. I mean, in the 1990s, Disney spent $34 million renovating the new Amsterdam theater. People probably don't remember this in Times Square. It really changed Times Square and was a wonderful theatrical experience. Now there seem to be all in and streaming. What do you think the sign is when they're talking about it that way? And at the same time, there's rumors that they want to possibly buy a movie theater chain. How are you looking at that? Because that could be a way out for your private equity investors. They may enjoy an acquisition by an Amazon or a Netflix, et cetera. I suppose that's a possibility. I don't know if that would be good or bad. I can't tell you if like Whole Foods is better or worse post Amazon acquisition. Well, it's still in business. It's still in business, yeah. It was struggling. <laughs> I believe that all the studios, not just Disney, they're trying to build a robust streaming business and it's been pretty wonderful the past year and the number of subscribers. I think there'll probably be a little bit of a, a leveling off. I think some that are late to the game are going to have trouble and people are going to realize that they're spending a lot of money on too many streaming services. So it's probably going to distill down to a few. Then there'll be a bundle. But it's it's almost irrelevant, right, to me for my business. And um, using my own words, I'm extremely confident <laughs> that there will be a theatrical window that getting out of the house and going to a movie theater is going to be vibrant and the industry will continue. And what happens in streaming happens in streaming. It just makes Disney a more profitable company, but I think they will have a profitable division of theatrical. Yeah. One of the things I was arguing with someone about whether you would keep, you have too many streaming things. I said, it still is not as much as I used to spend at theaters. It isn't, you know, I have a lot of kids, so it still is cheaper to have all these streaming services. When you zero it out, I'm sorry to say it's true. It's a lot cheaper also to um, get a bag of spaghetti at the store and cook it and then go out to a restaurant, right? So the restaurant industry seems to still be thriving. Yes. And, you know, people have kitchens in these modern day households. So people are cooking more than ever. (laughs) But let me get back to a question you just avoided. Would would you imagine Alamo Draft House being sold? I think you must be in the eye of Apple, of Amazon, of Disney. I could see any of them buying your company. For the experiential, you know, here's what we're going to offer it here. We're going to offer it here. We're going to offer it here. It certainly crossed my mind. I don't know if it would be a good or a bad thing. I would hope, 
right? I would hope that if an Apple or an Amazon decided to buy, say, oh, Alamo Drafthouse Cinema, that's exactly what we need in our portfolio, that um, it would be a beneficial alliance and they would buy us because they like where our rudder is. They appreciate our business and think that that would be additive to the movies that they make. It's an interesting concept because many years ago, I interviewed George Lucas at one of my events and this was long ago before streaming started. And I said, someday, because only certain directors can do this, you can pick whether you're going to sell it to a million people in their homes because there'll be these big screens or you can open it at only the theaters you like because they're beautiful and the sound is wonderful or you can open it wide and you're going to make these choices, right? Because you're going to have lots of choices. How do you think about that? Who has the power now in the movie theater experience? I was thinking George Lucas and the creators do. Well, it's interesting because my philosophy about this business is, you know, I, I came into it as a movie fan. I love movies. And uh, in particular, I'm, I'm pretty loyal to specific directors. And I consider myself in service of those storytellers. So I want to live up to their expectations, in particular in terms of presentation, sound quality, picture quality, or if there's a director like Paul Thomas Anderson or Christopher Nolan or Quentin Tarantino that wants it presented in 70 millimeter or 35 millimeter, I want to deliver that and I want to be the best at it, right? Because I'm a fan and these folks are making, you know, big, bold, beautiful stories for a movie screen. So we're partners and I'm the lowly partner. I mean, I love a universe where the extraordinary creators are in charge and certain few and elite category are and can dictate terms. The others are not. And the studios are in yeah. control. What do you think of Quentin Tarantino buying a movie theater? Oh, I think it's great. I mean, he's an interesting character in that he loves motion picture exhibition. This is his second theater that he's bought. And I think the Vista and the New Bev are extraordinary, but it's not the industry. It's driven by Quentin's passion and enthusiasm, but it's two screens. So I want to end with, with so many entertainment options. I said, my kids just don't go to theater. And it's not because I didn't bring them when they were kids. They did, but they love their phones. They like their big screen. They're very satisfied not going to theaters. So give me the argument for my kids to get, the, and me to get back in the theater. Well, I actually, um, I worry about my kids and I worry about a younger generation of being glued to the phone and glued to like this nonstop checking. And so I view cinema in a way as a bit of therapy. And this is also why I view it so vastly superior to the home experience, because at home, if you want to check your email while you're watching a movie, then well, or else you look up, oh, who's that guy? Or, you know, yeah, but you know, but there's no such thing as multitasking. What you've done is you've like you've violated the contract with the creator of that story and you've betrayed this experience. Like, so I want to be in the moment in the movie and lose myself. And uh, super important to have electronics off and just like have it wash over you. I'm going to push back a little bit okay. here because some movies don't deserve it. I, call, I, have, I have a no text movie or a four text movie. Like if it's a four text movie, it's a bad movie. So, you know, they just deserve my attention. <laughs> it was a bad movie and I deserved a text during that time because they did not tell a good enough story. Now, some movies are a no text movie. I will not touch my phone during a, a Bond movie or any. Uh, I like action movies, but. I will not touch my phone during a great movie at home or in the theater. Well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on that point. <laughs> I really appreciate it, Tim. Thank you so much for a really interesting interview. We can still agree to disagree. I didn't say it was going to be no business. It said it was going to be a smaller business. Sure. And then I guess we agree. It's going to be a slightly smaller but 
strong and healthy business. And there we disagree probably, but yes, <laughs> yes, that's my perspective. And I will continue to go to theaters as long as they keep making Fast and Furious movies, I promise. And I wish you good luck. I really do. I don't want the business to go away. I just calls them as I see them. Well, sometimes. you know, I'll reach out in a couple of years and tell you I told you so. Okay, that'd be great, <laughs> but I, I'm always right. <laughs> Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Caitlin O'Keefe, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza and Allison Bruzek. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Lyriel Higa. If you're on a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with a movie that you won't want to text through, like Gladiator, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.